Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. The Baptism and Testing of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Thanks be to God. I'm hardly a musician, certainly not a poet, and I dance with several left feet. So I'm the last person to know or say anything about rhythm. I have to say I even struggle to spell the word rhythm. But the gospel passage brings that word to mind. There is a very real rhythm within the passage, which I hope we'll use to help us reflect on the way in which Lent takes its place in the rhythm of the church year. 
the way in which Lent takes its place in the way we try to live out our Christian discipleship. You've probably noticed already that this year, when it comes to gospel readings, is the turn of Mark's gospel. Rowan Williams conducted a short series of Lent talks, not far away from here, which were later published in a book called Meeting God in Lent, in Mark. And he treats Mark's gospel as, it's, as if it were just a simple piece of literature. And he asks some of the questions we ought to consider as we read Mark's gospel from which our passage this morning came. What does the introduction of this character do to add to the plot of the book? Why are we told this now in the book? And Rowan Williams offers some fascinating insights into some of the regular questions that get posed by those who read Mark's Gospel, such as the so-called messianic secret. Why is it that just about every time Jesus did something that would attract attention to himself, he told people to keep it, keep it quiet? Or the mystery of the ending of Mark's gospel. Why does it end so abruptly with three women running away from the empty tomb in terror and amazement? That, that caused people problems from very earliest years. So there are two separate endings added on to Mark's gospel. You'll find them in the Bible in order to try and resolve that particular problem. But Rowan Williams also points out that putting great depth into apparently simple stories is something that requires enormous skill. And Mark is a great artist in that respect. If we read Mark slowly, go back over the surface simplicity, tune into some of the deeper themes, Mark challenges us to expose ourselves to a new and transforming relationship with the figure of Jesus, who is at the heart of the story. Jesus takes center stage from the very start in Mark's gospel. He is the beginning and the first principle of the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus, and it is Jesus. And in the passage we heard this morning, we have a triplet a triplet of affirmation and testing and action. It begins with affirmation. Jesus is baptized and the voice comes from heaven saying, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. You know, I think we underestimate affirmation at our peril. One of the things that's shaped my life over the past few years has been the birth of two granddaughters. Now, that provides a somewhat salutary experience of reflecting on all the mistakes I made as a parent as I see my daughter doing a much better job of the task of child-rearing than I ever managed. And I've noticed the use of the present participle to affirm. Sophie, that's really great standing. That's really good eating. 
That's very good knocking down. We know, don't we, actually, that a few words of affirmation can achieve so much more than hundreds of words of criticism. Even though we live in an age where the sound box of social media means that criticism and negative comment resound so quickly. I wonder, you know, why is it, and I think it's true particularly of church people, why is it that we give ourselves such a hard time? Beating ourselves up about all those expectations that we have failed to meet, expectations we put on ourselves, expectations other, people's put, other people put on us. Why is it we beat ourselves up over the misjudged word that we said when we were tired? Just notice that affirmation given to Jesus. Begins with the word of love. You are the beloved, says the voice from heaven. Surely we should allow ourselves just a moment to dare to believe that God is actually pleased with us. God is far less angry with us than we sometimes like to think. God is pleased with us just because we're here and for no other reason. And when we recognize that, then perhaps we then do have the resources we need to cope with all the dross. Because we can get it into perspective. So how about Lent as a time of affirmation, reflecting on the fact that we have been gifted with blessings from God that are beyond measure. We have the resources that we need to follow God's calling in our lives. Our churches have many riches to offer to their communities as they serve the purposes of God's kingdom. When it comes to the wider context of thinking of some of the things that dominate the headlines, whether it be the news that's dominated our, our television screens this week of what's gone on in Oxfam, Oxfam, or the prevalence of gun crime following the outrageous events in the school in Florida. We have our own equivalent of knife crime in the UK. We have the resources to deal with these things. Think of a prayer of Desmond Tutu that affirms the power of goodness. He says, victory is ours. Goodness is stronger than evil. Love is stronger than hate. Light is stronger than darkness. Life is stronger than death. Victory is ours through God who loves us. Affirmation, which then for Jesus leads on to testing. And we're told immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That word, drove, is powerful and evocative. It's the same word that's used in the Gospels for Jesus driving out evil spirits. 
It's a powerful compulsion that has its origin in the activity of the Spirit of God. The, the wilderness is the place where God compels Jesus to be. And the stripped down and sparing words that Mark uses are just as evocative in describing Jesus' experience of testing. They also invite us to use our imagination. Forty days. It's a significant space. We've actually no idea what Jesus was doing throughout that time. And Mark tells us even less than the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. It seems to have been a time of inactivity when a lot was happening. And there's another triplet within the triplet. We're told he was tested by Satan, accompanied by wild beasts, and waited on by angels. He was tested by Satan. Mark, in his gospel, later on, calls Peter, Jesus' close friend, Satan. It was after that remarkable conversation between Jesus and a couple of his disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had asked them, who do people say that I am? And as the conversation developed, Peter recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. But following that moment of great insight, he refused to believe that the Messiah would die and rise again. And instantly, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. A harsh rebuke. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now, is that a clue to understanding Jesus' testing? He's struggling with what is of God and what is of human origin in the ministry and mission that lies before him. A struggle that needs time and space when he is stripped bare of all the other distractions. A process where discerning between the merely human and the divine needs to take place in isolation because it is so intensely personal. I'm not sure what to make of the wild beasts that were present with him, although a quick trip into Google tells me that as well as gazelles and fallow deer in Israel, there were also leopards and bears. So they certainly don't found, sound friendly, but equally... They didn't harm him. Perhaps they served to underline his isolation. He has no human company in this elemental struggle. But of course we know he's not alone. Angels waited on him. God is not absent in his struggle. Though it's unlikely to match the dynamism of the struggle Jesus was driven to, how about Lent as a time for some serious discernment and reflection? What is of God 
And what is the merely human things that we're getting caught up in? In our own calling as disciples, in the life of our churches. Affirmation leads to testing, and then for Jesus, testing leads to action. And we were told he came into Galilee proclaiming the good news. To be clear, to be, to be fair, we're only at verse 14 in Mark's gospel, and we already have him preaching. Matthew and Luke take three or four chapters to get there. Mark can't be accused of wasting words on giving Jesus an introduction. He's got center stage from the very start. And again, Rowan Williams is helpful. The good news is shorthand or a public announcement of something that will alter the climate in which people live. Their lives are going to be changed and the politics and the possibilities are going to be changed. It's an announcement, he says, of regime change. A new reign has been inaugurated. You know that rhythm of affirmation, testing, action? So very easy for us, isn't it, to jump straight into action. Our lives can be so incredibly busy. The long hours culture that affects so many working people. We often judge the vitality of our churches by the number of activities and projects that we have on the go. The 24-hour news world of instant communication that we put leaders under pressure for instant action and reaction. Nobody is allowed to say anymore. I need time to think about that. Not having a soundbite policy or the facts at your fingertips is seen as a sign of weakness and failure. The kind of issues that confront our society today, and I've already mentioned too, abuse and violence, are never going to be resolved by a quick fix. Affirmation and testing need to come before action. And I think it's true also of the challenges we face in the church. How much of our busyness in the life of our churches is really displacement activity because we've lost any sense of rhythm in our lives? I guess if I've learned anything in the past few years, and some of you know I was quite seriously ill a few years ago, it's that frenetic activity is counterproductive. More often than we think, the reply to the email can wait a bit longer. We actually can allow a bit of space, some time between the appointments in our diaries. When I was recovering, a friend of mine sent me a card, and on the front it had a picture of an empty chair on it. And inside she wrote, saying, this is, remind you, this is to remind you to sit in one and do nothing occasionally. Except, of course, we're never really doing nothing. That undervalues the importance 
of simply having space for the divine purpose of healing and renewal to take place within us. I don't think it's too fanciful to see this rhythm of affirmation, testing and action as something fundamental to our lives as Christian discipleship. It all begins for us, doesn't it, with the knowledge that we're loved by God and that nothing can separate us from that love. But the space for discerning what's of ultimate significance also needs to be there. Because without it, we can fly off in all kinds of unhealthy directions. And together, they make the beginning and the foundation for fruitful action in the service of God's regime. Amen. <laughs>